Welcome to Great Minds, and this is a real pleasure to have James Cornish on the show as we wind down season four here on Great Minds, James. James is the Senior Vice President of International Sales and Partnerships at Vivo. They are a great, great partner to us. Uh, we do an annual night at Ronnie Scott's, uh, part of Advertising Week Europe in London uh, with Vivo. That is uh, without question uh, my favorite night of the year. Uh, Ronnie's is such a special place. James and his team every year really bring it. Uh, last year we had Bastille. I think that might've been our best, James. It's definitely up there, wasn't it? Definitely yeah. up there. Definitely up best there. Best to date. Best to date, I would say. I like that. I like that means something <laughs> they that means he has something extraordinary cooking for this coming May. <laughs> We're working on it. We're working on it. Yeah. And uh and James and I have become good pals over the years. So uh James, uh really thrilled to have you here and have a chance to talk to you here on Great Minds. Uh, thank you, Matt. That's a very uh very kind and warm welcome. I appreciate it. Um I'm feeling a little bit uh overwhelmed uh that I'm on a podcast entitled Great Minds. But I will, I will do my best <laughs> to give you some reasonable insights, or at least try and get my kids. Well, with your host as a as a measure, I can assure you that the bar is set quite low. So, <laughs> so James, uh, we're going to get to all the stuff that's happening at Vivo now. I know you just came out of your big annual global sales org and plotting and planning for 24, 25 and beyond. But I'd love to go back and talk about early days and a company that you were at, give or take 20 some odd years ago, which is sort of disappeared, but really legendary in many ways. So many talented people work there. Uh, they were a big, big player in the business and that's EMAP. So mm -hmm. I'd love to start by going back to young James uh, okay. at EMAP about give or take 20 years ago. Yeah, no worries. Um, so you're right. That was my, my very first media gig. I had a good friend who I'd been to school with and subsequently university who ended up working in the radio planning team there. Oh, man, I was probably a bit lost coming out of uni in terms of what I was going to do. And this friend of mine said, oh, you should come along and have a chat with a person at the time who was hiring for the, the, the entry-level roles there. I didn't really understand what they were doing and what it was all about. But I went for the first sort of round of interviews um, and chats with the people there, started to understand a little bit about the business and the role. I remember uh, sort of specifically them saying to me, oh, sorry, me specifically saying to them, hey, look, I I'm not a salesperson. I don't think I can do sales, but I can do all these other bits and pieces around it. And I remember at the time they were like, we need someone with sort of a sales edge, et cetera. But for whatever reason, I managed to pass the test having uh, bluntly said, I can't do certain part of the remit, uh, which was due to probably my perception about what sales entailed going back those 20 years. And yeah, eventually sort of, sort of fell on my feet really in that role there working on Shaftesbury Avenue to your point some really iconic brands across radio print sort of embryonic days of digital tv there you know and we had a lot of fun and a lot of amazing people that I've learned a load off being taught by being mentored by uh sort of existed in that business and have all gone on to have amazing careers and uh it was a really fun time I spent maybe four four and a half years there's four and a half years in, in radio, moving into the digital team, sort of for the last, latter 18 months, two years or so. So, um, yeah, that, that was fun times, fun brands, and sort of got me a first taste of, I guess, the power and influence of, of media and brands 
how they work together, cross-platform stuff, cross-channel, multi-channel things. So yeah, it was a really good backbone as a sort of place to launch my career, I think. And, and for a first gig in media, there were truly a lot of great minds at EMAP who I imagine you got to learn from. Oh, 100%, yeah. Um, we had, I could sort of roll them, roll off my tongue really, but uh, when I joined, Aaron Stacey was running the radio team. Bruce Daisley was there sort of doing the digital thing and then into radio. Uh, we had Andy Morley was there, Mandy Fowler. I made some really good friends there who are still like some of my best friends in the industry to date. Uh, people like Tom Curry, Anthony Muscundi, Dom Dunn, Kurt Edwards, uh, lo- loads of great characters and loads of really, I would say, skilled and uh, articulate operators that, yeah, you you kind of learned from, watched and sort of took the bits you wanted from all the sort of variety of personalities and traits and try and mould them into 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 one that you, you can then apply yourself really absolutely fantastic and and james you touched on it but truly the early days of digital yeah uh, definitively i mean i think as i started was it 2001 or 2002 something like that we were just getting our act together on creating a web presence to replicate Primarily, the first protocol was looking at the sort of the print titles and how you have then have a web presence to support that. And the reality was, and everyone would look back on this and say the same, they cut and paste the print offering <laughs> and put it on, on a URL and uh, hoped it would work, <laughs> which is, you know, what you do when you don't know the path you're foraging, right? And you've got to try and test and learn. So, you know, but it was all about sort of digital and connectivity. And actually, everyone was like, oh, how do we explore the space? But at the same time, you know, probably a bit of resistance around it as well and thinking about, you know, how does this challenge our business? How do we sort of embrace it and make it grow our business as opposed to uh, being a little bit probably cautious around it and the threats that it potentially posed, which obviously have later manifested themselves very clearly in print and, you know, across other mediums, you know, we're starting to see how that is disrupting or has disrupted, you know, other media channels, you know, and I think certainly other other channels have learned from that and have watched that story unfold and have sort of lent into it now. So, you know, it's, it's been a great sort of breeding ground for understanding how it affects complements and can can build. But, yeah, definitely it was right at the beginning as sort of digital was coming to fruition and we were selling skyscrapers and leaderboards on FHN.com. Incredible. And, and, and it's all happened just so quickly. You know, one of the things that's interesting, you talk about any sector in any era, really, and there are brands that sustain and grow and brands that disappear. And we were talking the other day about some of the great retail brands, you know, here in New York that were once dominant that are now gone completely. And the same thing has happened in our space where there were brands that were huge players not that long ago. Uh, who disappeared, others that have emerged like Vivo that have sustained and really exploded in so many ways. Looking back at at EMAP, uh, I think about the earliest days of Advertising Week. Our first year in New York was 2004. Many of the companies that we partnered with, not only are they smaller, they don't exist at all anymore. I mean, Time Inc. as a company is gone. Talk about what the attributes were of EMAP. You had a lot of talented people, didn't really make it over time. 
and the attributes of companies like Vivo that have made it and have successfully navigated that change. Yeah, I, I think it um, comes back to sort of what we discussed a minute ago and that you, you, you can see it as a threat to the business and you can resist sort of digital capabilities and distribution and, and, and how content and media is found. You can resist it or, you know, conversely, you can lean into it and try and use it to your advantage. And I think possibly in the early days of digital, you, you, you're more, it was more common for people to resist and then people came along and ate their lunch really. Um, whereas I think today you, you probably still have a little bit of resistance around it. You know, look what's happening in TV, but you, you have an undeniable, um, appreciation of the way in which consumerism is going and therefore you have to lean into it. Uh, and with that, I think you have to more dynamic, consciously evolving or continuously evolving and consciously looking to stay ahead. And a good example of something that probably sat in the middle of those two things was before, after I worked at EMAP, I worked at MySpace and that came in and sort of revolutionized, I would say, the digital media or, or partly contributed to the revolution of sort of digital display, advertising propositions and media. And that was a disruptor and that embraced sort of the way that, you know, digital could build communities. But what it didn't do, to be honest with you, is it didn't evolve. It kind of came in, felt that it felt, I think that it was sort of won the crown and then didn't move on, you know, and it had probably had a great opportunity and a uh, audience basis upon which to do so, but it just didn't evolve. And so first you have to sort of embrace where the opportunity to reach your consumers are today. And then secondly, you have to keep evolving to meet that you know meet, meet the uh, the ability of those channels um the ways in which consumers are finding you and, and be present where they are to be relevant to them yeah good, great answer and touching on your tenure at fox interactive and myspace there was a moment in time where myspace and facebook were pretty much equal equal potent forces uh neither was much larger than the other and it seemed like they both had quite a similar opportunity at a moment in time. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they definitely did. And I think I, I sort of joined MySpace maybe about 2007 and Facebook sort of within six months or a year was then present. Um, and you're right, like very similar in terms of audience basis and broadly ad proposition. But I think the reality there of what happened, and this is my opinion, <laughs> um, is MySpace didn't capitalize on its position and we had an opportunity to thrive and develop a deeper sort of content set within the platform so myspace was a creative platform it had music as, as its heart as its dna they could have done more around connecting people making music available all those type of things so think spotify spotify launched into myspace's existing user base which had millions of people around the world connected around by and large, musical interests, that could have been a great op opportunity to evolve and develop uh, the platform in and around that area. Um, conversely, uh, so the, th the thing with, with, with Facebook was as a utility, as a platform to connect with people, it was really easy to use. It was really intuitive. It was really clean and simple. And it built the user base and the habit through being that sort of almost like a messenger service, right? That you could then later sort of share you know, your own content, et cetera, but it, it lent into the ability to connect people. And MySpace was a bit more clunky and it was a bit more about being creative and, 
you know, showcasing what music you like and and that type of thing. But it didn't win on the connection piece, and then it didn't move forward on the developing the sort of cultural relevance and the music piece that sort of fell between two two sort of different paths, if you like. So, uh, you know, sadly, sadly, it lost the race. And uh, you know, again, that is my opinion, but that's sort of how I saw it unfold. Um, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I think an opinion shared by many. And we were part of, there was a brief comeback a few years ago. It was a little odd that there were two brothers, Chris and Tim, I think it was Vanderhook. And they brought MySpace back for a few years. And it didn't really work. Justin Timberlake was part of it in some fashion. That's right. And all I remember yeah. is we had Justin at Advertising Week and we did a little event for him with uh, the leadership team at MySpace in a wonderful little jewel box of a space in Radio City Music Hall. There's a little space called the Roxy Suite. It's an Art Deco apartment. Someone used to live there. And nice. when the big, big names would play there, like Sinatra back in the day, they would entertain in the Roxy Suite. And we did something with Justin, with MySpace. We did a big concert with them. We had B.O.B., I think Natasha Bedingfield, Far East Movement, and we were supposed to have Drake and mm -hmm. as like a surprise headliner. And we ordered all his backline, everything. Something happened the night before. I think Drake was a little shaky then in terms of showing up places. It ended up being a great <laughs> show without him. And then the whole thing disappeared. And I think it's gone completely now. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, they, they might have given it a couple of sort of goes at sort of resuscitating it a little bit. But yeah, sadly, not to be, I'm not exactly sure why, but I'm guessing, you know, the reality of the sort of consumption on the platform um, shifted elsewhere. And, you know, whilst whilst Facebook sort of overtook it at that, 2007, 8, 9, 10, then you then layer in all the other platforms that have come about and probably really missed its uh, missed its window of opportunity, yeah, I think, sadly. I think you're right. Okay, dialing back to that James Cornish narrative as we, as we build towards <laughs> an incredible 10-year run at Vivo that you're still very much in the midst of, you then go to Virgin Media, another company a lot of great people have worked at Virgin, uh, another farm system of talent, and had a pretty good run there for about three years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've been lucky, really. I've worked at some great companies with great people. Um, yeah, Virgin was exciting. So that sort of emerging days of VODs, broadcaster VOD, big screen VODs. Uh, so we, again, you know, with that and that sort of digital property, we had a nice cross-platform sell there, good brands to sell around yeah and great people like i uh so i met um flinty Stuart flint there who was my boss for those three years or the majority of those three years and he's been a good friend of mine and sort of mentor since so yeah i was lucky lucky that um <clears throat> you know i moved from emap to myspace to virgin all, all good businesses that I, that I enjoyed working at and sort of suited me from a brand and media perspective and gave me good exposure to to different channels and different platforms and um you know, set me up really well for, you know, moving into where, where I am now at Vivo. And you then go to Vivo, sort of a lateral move, staying at that sales director level. But give us the ver yeah. the origin story. How'd you get to Vivo? I got to, there was a guy who was the, what was they? They were the FD at 
MySpace, a guy there called Hong, and he went to Vivo post MySpace as they set up and became the general manager for the UK. Uh, and we had a pretty good relationship at MySpace and just over time you keep in touch with people um, and, you know, we'd had a few conversations over the years about the opportunity at Vivo um, and then, you know, at, at one, you know, just came to a point where after sort of done three years at Virgin, um, things were, you know, changing a little bit there in terms of their setup Um and their appetite at the time for um, advertising versus their customer base. So, um, yeah, the the opportunity arose. I I sort of got under the skin a little bit of the business to understand a little bit more about the opportunity there and knowing Hong and he was, you know, we, we chatted for a while back and forth and just the sort of timing eventually, you know, got to a point where it felt right. And uh, that was 2004. 14 beginning of 2014 right so just celebrated 10 years at vivo i've just celebrated 10 years yeah yeah about two weeks ago unbelievable <laughs> was there, was there a cake yeah. was there a, was there a little party <laughs> uh there was no little party but we we have uh we have a really very nice recognition scheme at our business around 10 year lengths and three years and five years and 10 years so I've been very nicely treated as a result of that. So, um, you know, they look after us and uh, um, it's certainly been acknowledged. I'll say that. All right. Fair enough. And and a great and a great team it is indeed. You you start to move then from a business that was and a career that was largely London centric. And you then start to move into a global remit, you know, moving into international sales and uh and doing it extraordinarily well now leading vivo uh globally uh, across the business talk about that move from dealing with let's call it a local customer base versus one that is truly global certainly london a great global platform and city to do that from but that's a big big move to go from you know a a, mm. a, a largely let's call it a local focus and and local is probably too small a word but to a to a global remit territory focus yeah. in that yeah territory better word yeah um I kind of sort of forged the path to build that that piece of the business out when i when i went to vivo it was a it was a sort of uk centric role but um the reality of our content or vivo's content is uh, the rights and access we have to it is global. So we distribute wherever we can. Like our our remit is, yes, the sort of monetization of our content, but primarily, well, not primarily, on an equal footing is the sort of marketing and promotional value of the content we have. You know, Taylor Swift wants her videos to be seen around the world to as many people as possible, um, as does every artist that sits under Universal and Sony. And our job is to ensure that that happens. Um, so as a result of this, we have this kind of like sort of seamless distribution that means that we have significant audiences in the UK, but also through the same content set because music is so universally loved. I mean, it's hard to go to a country where music isn't loved, right? Absolutely. Um, which is which is something you can't say about many content sets, you know. Um, certain sports perhaps transcend, but not all sports do. Um, you know, news is particularly local. 
Um, certain entertainment, obviously, is, is global, but, you know, it has a relatively unique capacity to do that. And therefore, the sort of proposition from an advertising perspective, if I understand it, if I like it and I want to be into culture, music is a vehicle to do it. And we have the opportunity to do that in France, in Germany, in South Africa, in LATAM. Um, and slowly we start to speak to more, I would say, centralised buying points through London to scale that out. But also we work with, um, you know, resale partners in other markets um, to uh, present our proposition to monetize it on a, on a local level. So it's just kind of like a hybrid model. And we've been through sort of various changes on that. Um, and so before I get there, but, but, but as we sort of re realized and recognized that, we started to build a business that enabled us to tap into some of these, these sort of budgets and advertiser relationships. And that's sort of how the sort of foray into being, uh, having an international remit as well as a sort of UK basis um, uh, one happened. Um, which again, you know, uh, back to the original story talked about as things, as digital hits and its capability starts manifesting itself and you realize the opportunity you can sort of plow new past don't can't you so you know and and now where we are at today we see a netflix a disney a amazon they have a global tv proposition that was not possible five years ago or six years ago right it was all very local so that sort of riding on the back of that digital capability and possibility sort of create the opportunity for me and our team to to start working um you know, in a sort of multifaceted way. Yeah. One of the things I always wonder is like, I remember when Netflix was a DVD mailing business. I'm, I'm sure you do too. And, and the, yeah. the other dominant brand of the day here was Blockbuster. Was Blockbuster big in the UK also? Blockbuster was big in the UK. Yeah. 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 And you know, another one that's gone completely. Um, I always wonder, did Reed Hastings and the leadership team of Netflix know when it was a DVD business what was coming i'm guessing they must have done yeah i mean it, it's become such a so. i mean they're the the dominant studio in hollywood yeah. now and and globally and it was a very different business not that long ago yeah this is this is true but i, I again i think one of the themes we talked about is sort of recognizing the sort of direction of travel and capitalizing in it and building yeah. a consumer proposition that fits for that. And clearly that's what yeah. you know, their whole bet has been and, and fair play. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Vivo has also ridden that same wave. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting to watch uh, is how you have really navigated not only where the business is but where it's going you know that convergence of content technology distribution the desire of brands to act globally uh yeah. and and but also being able to localize content so it's relevant in a given market and that's all a very tricky balance which you continue to do really brilliantly yeah, no, no, thank you. I think like we take pride in that. I mean, we're, we're fortunate that, again, some of, we, have, we have global rights over some of the most powerful and sought-after content on the planet. So that's bestowed on us, and it's our responsibility, I think, you know, to, to deliver that to consumers in the best way, shape, or form possible, which then enables advertisers to find the best advertising opportunity possible and tap into that. 
you know, we, we've seen it go from a sort of desktop orientated business proposition to grow into being dominant, predominantly mobile to now we're in a place where music videos has come full circle and is now back in the living room and in a really big, significant way. And, you know, we, we've watched that happen to a certain extent organically with all content. We're lucky that our content can bleed across screens and across channels. And as it comes back to TV, we've really sort of got hold of that and tried to enhance you know, the TV opportunity that, um, you know, our content sort of deserves and and represents today and built out our distribution to support that, built out the formats and the ways in which you can get access to it. If you want a curated stuff, uh, sort of curated experience, we have that. If you want an on-demand experience, we have that. If you want to be taken back to the 90s and noughties, we have that. So, again, just trying to feed, feed the need and the, uh, uh you know the appetite we're seeing from consumers in and on the screens that they want to see it the most i don't know if that answers your question or it just sort of like <laughs> adds some flavor and color to the sort of direction of our conversation a little bit of paprika and oregano there for sure not only are you working with the biggest artists in the world the biggest labels in the world uh but you're also breaking new artists talk about vivo as a platform and really a dominant one to break bands which you know was unimaginable when you know you were in those, those early days in emap if you said there's going to be a global digital player in music that's going to break bands you know i'm sure certainly i would have looked at somebody with my eyebrows up like I, what are you talking about but this is a re <laughs> this is a reality of of vivo and the the power that your platform has globally yeah yeah absolutely we have a uh... You know, as well as taking all the official music videos in from the labels and having those sort of bestowed upon us and being responsible for distribution monetization, we create some of our own original programming, utilizing, not utilizing, using the artists and the flow of artists that come through the labels. To be honest, from breaking new artists that maybe have just signed their first deal through to, you know, some real big headline, you know, major global superstars, we do sort of different uh, levels of... Um, uh, contact for content formats with those guys. But I think to your point and your question, we have a thing called discover, which is all about helping new emerging artists create new and different forms and articulations of their art. Um, and so we've have studios in uh, London, in New York, in LA, where we bring in this sort of conveyor belt of new talent and we create exclusive performance versions of their first tracks or tracks from their upcoming album and we build that into a platform called discover and then we can then drip feed all these new artists and amazing talent from around the world and again to your point we do it uk spain germany france we pick up all the local emerging um artists um and we create them content that can then go and promote and market themselves and take them out to these audiences who are craving new music so it's a really powerful vehicle for us that works for our label partners um uh works for the artists and it works for vivo because we're sort of the unique home for presenting these uh you know the amazing new arts that come through the the program and and giving them a sort of a footing into the industry and helping support their careers and uh if you will i'll um when i joined back to 2014 when i joined vivo i walked around the corner in our office on argyle street which is just opposite liberties and we used to do this, not in a studio, but in the kitchen of our office. And we pull out all the tables and chairs and the table football and all that business. We put in a couple of stools and some, you know, um, 
some handheld lighting and we'd film people coming and just do an acoustic set. And there's a guy came in one day that, that year as Sam Smith and everyone's like, Oh, it's Sam Smith around the corner. He's filming for us. I'm like, cool. Never heard of Sam Smith, but you know, sounds good. And then about a year later, you know, we know, you know, we know Sam Smith's trajectory and it's amazing. This guy was just sitting there five yards away, sort of singing to our office. Um, and now he's, you know, one of the big global superstars on the planet. And that's just, uh, one example I remember from my sort of early days and a, and, a, and a big name that's risen as a result, not exclusively down to the sort of platform we've given to them, but we've been a big component part of helping them, you know, establish themselves and have successful careers and the world being able to hear and see their music. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Uh, and I love those early beginnings and where these artists have go- gone and grown, uh, often fueled by Vivo. Talk about the work that you're doing with great brands. You know, the brands really recognize the power of music, the power of the Vivo platform. Uh, You're doing some fantastic partnerships. I think the team uh, led by Kevin, now led by Bobby and yourself, Mm -hmm. really, really just crushing it. But talk about how you're crafting that compelling offering, working with brands, not just territorially, as you said, a better Mm -hmm. word than local, but globally the the proposition with us starts with the power of our content like if we didn't have that content we would never be able to build and engage with the audiences and the thing about our content is music is universally loved and there is something for everyone within a music catalog um, as broad and diverse as we have in terms of representation of all of universal and all so and sony's um, artists within that so that's the starting point for us. And it is loved and adored and is watched more than any other content genre I can see on the planet. Unless I've missed something, nothing generates more viewership than that's that content. So we start there and then we think about the cultural relevance and impact that content has, the diversity of the audiences that it builds and taps into. Um, it's something for everyone from every walk of life, from every race, etc. We're able to serve this really broad diverse um audience text and then we think about on top of that the screens in which we're engaging with people um and if you think on a macro level around how tv is changing how tv is shifting how broadcast looks today versus what it looked like five years ago and then and then what we're seeing is the opposite in terms of our growth into tv music living room music videos coming back to the living room um at a at a significant scale because it's so well loved and so many people come to check out their favorite content. Um, we start having this really modern, really powerful modern day, culturally relevant global TV proposition that's delivered digitally that has the benefits and execution of digital, but retains the legacy, the power, the fame, um, and the cultural relevance of TV. So I guess sort of, those are the sort of core ingredients and elements that we've built together. And yeah, to your point, there's, there's, there's lots of advertisers who we're doing great work with, who are looking to the future in terms of how content is consumed, where it's consumed and understanding the impact and the power of, of certain types of media and then sort of grabbing hold of that and looking at it to your point, yeah, looking at it uh, just in the UK or just in Italy, but also thinking about it from a broader global perspective, because if I can understand the concept and the principle and I like the value and the power it affords me, 
I can translate this very, very easily, very, very quickly at scale. Uh, absolutely. Great, great story. So well told. And James, what I also love about you know, your tenure there, you're playing in the sweet spot of digital, of course, but you also recognize the impact and value of experiential. Not only what you do with us at Ronnie's uh, once a year, but as sort of part of the James Cornish recipe, you're you know, really <laughs> leveraging that power of, of live music in a very compelling way. Yeah, whenever you get the opportunity to bring people in and get them closer to the content and the music and the experience, it really helps you appreciate, you know, just how special music can be. And to, to your point, Ronnie Scott's is, you know, we've done it every year since I've been there. So there's 10 years worth, you know, excluding a couple of years we were off for, for COVID. Um, but it is a real showcase of like, the heart and the soul of what our medium represents and uh you know music's powerful isn't it in terms of its ability to connect with people and you you add ronnie scott's as a setting and an environment and the acoustics and the feel and then you you insert like an amazingly talented artist or artists into that you have a pretty magical formula that you know i feel everyone can engage with and come away going wow what an experience that was and uh that's a really nice way to bring to life, you know, what we represent. Yeah. And really nothing comparable. I think maybe live theater, maybe, but I think sure. there's a certain uh, indefinable characteristic of music that really touches us in a different way. Um, and maybe it's cause it activates so many of the senses. Uh, but we went and saw the Marley movie, uh, yesterday and right. a lot of great music in that, uh, of course. And, you know, as I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking back to, I was lucky enough to work with Ziggy Marley a couple of times and we worked, we did something acoustic with him. We were opening up, uh, something in California and we had him behind a scrim, just him with a guitar and a percussionist who was in the whalers. Uh, and just the power of that emotion, the simplicity, you know, you talked about going back to Argyle street and Sam Smith with some of the strip stripped down acoustic stuff that we've done together, you know, at Ronnie's James Arthur, you know, there wasn't a lot of production with him and he, he was just incredible, uh, really nothing quite like it. And it must be an awful lot of fun to be in that musical playpen, you know, each and every day. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, we, we did the IAB Connected TV up front last year and we had May Stevens come out who's an emerging artist and uh, a guy with a guitar and May Stevens and her voice and you could hear a pin drop and the hairs on the back of your neck stood up when she opened her mouth. And it's like, this is what it's all about. So yes, on that sort of experiential connection you have. but um, And then, you know, sort of translating that back into, I guess, my day job and why I love what I do is I'm talking about media that connects to people in that way and that's that's something that kept me there for 10 years because I'm, I'm I guess I'm a proud of it but be excited by it and I feel that has a point of differentiation over a lot of other things so it's that powerful that it's hard to dismiss <laughs> and it's easy to support and get behind and be excited about and stand up for and fight for so you know they're components that you know uh, have value in all sorts of ways from you know uh, energizing and inspiring us to do our job as best we possibly can to represent it as well as, you know, 
having those experiences where you're like, oh my God, that was just amazing. And I've never seen anything like it. And you know, the, the goosebumps that come with it. Yeah. Well, there's not a lot of folks who have a 10 year tenure anywhere today. And I think that you're in the midst of it and, you know, still going strong really speaks just to that, to the passion, to riding that spirit of reinvention uh, and to being in a place where people want to be. And, and I think yeah. that's an awfully big, you know, set of tools to work with. Talk about uh, you were just at your annual global sales meeting without, you know, revealing any trade secrets. What's the game plan to keep that spirit of invention and reinvention and evolution going at Viva? What can we look for, you know, into our crystal ball in 24, 25, 26? What's sort of going to stay the same? What's going to get, you know, changing? What's going to be a little bit different? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that that, that uh, sale, annual sales conference for us is a bit of a, um, you, you can decompress, you can step outside of your day-to-day -day and you take sort of stock of where you're at and what where is where is the core value in what we're doing? How do we extract more of that out and represent that in a better, more powerful, engaging way? You know, and I, things like, think about the cultural impact of our content. And it's a very obvious, easy one for me to point to right now, but look what Taylor Swift is doing around the world. Look at the influence she had on, and you know, it's funny that we had the Super Bowl last week, but look at the influence and the buzz around Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl and the cultural sort of uh, impact she has. Look at the Usher halftime show and the impact that has. And what we see is we then see those artists take off on Vivo. For days and weeks post that event, they spike, <laughs> like significantly spike. And it's a real representation of the, or a temperature check of what's going on in society. So we take a step, sort of like, actually, okay, let's reevaluate, well, not reevaluate, but we need to reinforce and double down and make people aware of the impact that we have in that our content has. So we do things like that and understanding the, the breadth of the audience and the diversity of our content and, you know, how can we articulate that more powerfully how can we create opportunities for advertisers to tap into that authenticity and that diversity so sort of planning around those things and we think about where's our next moves from a distribution standpoint how do we create for the next platform are we on the cutting edge of where the consumer is moving to and how do we optimize in those environments so that you know, again, we are not left behind. We're embracing the future and, and rolling with it. So, you know, a bit of a, a combination of take stock. What can you grab hold of a bit more and improve and learn and articulate more powerfully? And actually, you know, the other bit is the, the, the more future facing stuff that is discussed, tabled and some of the stuff that, you know, I won't talk to, but we start sort of pointing uh, sort of our fingers to the areas of opportunity that we should be moving towards great answer and and james as we start to wrap you have a global remit music more than ever is a global language we're seeing the nigerian acts you know blow up all over the world burn a boy whiz kid yeah. so so many others what do you see as sort of the hottest parts of the globe that aren't talked about all that much yeah they are they are good examples um what I would say probably the biggest thing we have seen is the explosion of Latin music. So now you've got Carol G being the most viewed artist on Vivo, um, whereas you go back two years, it's probably Taylor Swift. But people like Carol G are blowing up, not only in Latin, but translating into Spain and Italy and all sorts of other markets. But it's a real hotbed of talent that, 
has a uh, an adoring audience yeah. <laughs> who can't get enough of it. <laughs> so yes, that's certainly Latin music and that explosion there has been been big all across America and you know it, it, exporting itself outside of that now into into many other territories. Great, great stuff. Well, James, I can't tell you what a pleasure this was to, you know, have this kind of conversation with you. And uh, we love our partnership with you and your team at uh, Vivo. It's uh, truly uh, the night of the year for us every year without fail uh, in London. And a lot of that is the magic you bring. And a lot of it is that fabulous, unique setting of Ronnie Scott's. But uh, it's been a joy to really become friends over the years and uh, get to spend time together outside of a business environment. And I just love what you and your team are doing and can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us here on Great Minds. That's that's awesome, Matt. Um, that's, uh, yeah, again, very kind of you to say so. appreciate your support. It's been equally fun on our side. We look forward to uh, what we're cooking up for this year. And um, yeah, appreciate you having me on and I'll see you soon. You bet. Thanks. Cheers, Matt.